Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In your mind. There we go. Talk Recorded live. Welcome to the GIC call, or better known as Grounded in Commerce. It is Tuesday, uh, September 15, 2015. Grounded in Commerce group objective to bring you sense the seemingly sensible world of commerce. People tend to get lost in the administrative processes and pursuit being applicable to the private and public merits. We offer to our listeners a very exposure to educational materials to gain an understanding of one pursuit. This material here today is not to be misconstrued as legal or financial advice. We strongly suggest if you need legal or financial advice that you seek a licensed attorney or financial planner or both. This material here tonight is for entertainment purposes only, and I would like to turn the mic over to Nancy. So is Nancy there? I am, and good afternoon and evening to everyone. So tonight's topic of conversation comes from something that's happened in our little area here. Uh, It happened about six weeks ago, and it is called a rule change. And a rule change for this particular incident was, in fact, the rules that have been determined from the court system that have been in play for a couple of years. Usually every two years they decide whether to keep or change or, you know, modify kick out, throw out, you know, add in, whatever they want, new rules in the court system. So it happened in August 1st, and it's interesting from my perspective to be of a review of those things, to know what has changed so that if, in fact, you may have created a pleading um, in one certain form, that now that form may be different because of new rules and regulations. And if one is not up Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Um, Anyway, so in order to save yourself time, grief, um, embarrassment, possible, you know, uh, missing of an opportunity to um, file appropriately, your case or cause might be damaged um, by you not understanding or knowing the new rules. So many on many occasions we've had many opportunities to go back and look at different things and because each state is different, meaning each state has the opportunity, whether they choose so or not, to have their own set of rules. And those are published by their own state and not published at the federal level. So don't go asking the federal government for any kind of your court rules or your state rules or anything else. They're your states and that's where you get that information from. So 
yet on the same type of note is many times we look at the federal rules to kind of give us an idea of where your state might be in this in in this series of information and and, and where they are in the um, you know process of these things. So tonight, I would just like to read through the fed the just the headings alone for the rules of civil procedure for the federal section. And I want you to start thinking and forming questions in your mind so that when you start to go look at your own case cause. Um, in your own state, you can kind of get an idea of this is the flow of what you're looking for or what you're looking at and why you're looking at that. So most of the time you have the scope or of the rules in the form of action. So they will decide what's in that framework, what, what's the scope, what's the purpose, and one form of action. Next is commencing an action, service of process, pleadings, motions, and orders. Now, I noticed that in my state, those are each separate titles or separate sections. So you would need to look at each one of those separately, commencing an action. What does that mean? A summons. Who, who are you summoning? Um, service of process. What is, what is service of process? If you've never done that, how would you begin to understand it? Uh, serving and filing pleadings and other papers. Um, constitutionally challenging a statute, notice, certification, or intervention. Um, privacy protection, very big in our world today. And there are very, a lot of very big issues um, from that stemming from years ago. Uh, people put a lot of information on their court documents, and it wasn't always um, appropriate to do that. So nowadays they have court clerks, county clerks, going back in and taking out all that information and blocking it out or putting another cover sheet over the top or doing something. So it takes up quite a bit of our time and resources to do that. Um, then they have computing and extending time and time for motion papers. The next one is pleadings and motions. Pleadings allowed. So in other words, which ones are allowed, which ones aren't. Forms of motions and other papers. Disclosure statements. General rules for pleadings. That to me is, hot, hot, you know, do they use lined paper? Do they use unlined paper? Do they use, um, and by lined and unlined, I mean there's something called a 28-page um, line or a 25-page line. It's where the numbers are down the side of the page. Um, is that required or not required? Is it required to have a, a half-inch space or a three-inch space, whatever it is, top, bottom, you know, all the margins and things like that. Special pleading matters. Forms of pleading. Signing pleadings, motions, and other papers, representations to the court, and sanctions. Defenses and objections, when and how presented. Motion for judgment on the pleadings, consolidating motions, waiving defenses, and pretrial hearings. Counterclaims and cross-claims. Third-party practices. Amended and supplemental pleadings. Pretrial conferences, scheduling, and management. We get into parties, plaintiff and defendant, capacity and public officers, joinders of claims, required joinder of parties, permissive joinder of parties, misjoinder of parties, and non-joinder of parties. 
Lots of joining and not joining. Jump in or not jump in. <laughs> Interpleader. Class action. Derivative action. Actions relating to unincorporated associations. Notice how that's all on its own separate. Interve intervention, sorry. Substitution of parties. And you have next disclosure and discovery. The duty to disclose, general provisions and discovering. Depositions to perpetuate testimony. Persons before whom depositions may be taken. Stipulations about discovery procedures. Depositions by oral exam. Depositions by written questions. So that's where you, a lot of you can get your information about when doing a deposition. What can you ask? How many questions? What type of questions? What's, you know, what's in that realm for you to ask? Using depositions in court proceedings. Interrogatories. Producing documents, electronically stored information. In the land of electronicisms, you know, what is workable, doable, what can be brought into evidence and what can't be brought into evidence. And then you have physical and mental examinations, um, requests for admissions, and failure to make disclosures or to cooperate in discovery under sanctions. Then you get under trials. Trial, right to a jury trial, demand, right, I'm sorry, trial by jury or by the court, scheduling cases for trial, dismissal of actions, consolidation, separate trial, taking testimony, proving an official record. That should be also something that, from my perspective, I would highlight. Um, determining foreign law, subpoena, objecting to a ruling or order. Selecting jurors, the number of jurors, verdicts and polling, special verdict, general verdict and questions, judgment as a matter of law in a jury trial, related motion for a new trial, conditional ruling, instructions for the journey, a jury, jury, objections, preserving and claiming of error, findings and conclusions by the court, and judgment on partial findings. Then you get into judgment, judgment, judgment cost, default judgment, summary judgment, declaratory judgment, entering judgment, new trial, altering or an amending of a judgment, relief from a judgment or an order, harmless error, stay of proceedings to enforce a judgment, indicative ruling on a motion for relief that is barred by a pleading, pending appeal, and the judge's inability to proceed. Then you get into provisional and final remedies. Seizing a person or property. I like the seizing a person. Um, injunctions and restraining orders. Proceedings against a surety. Receivers. Deposit into a court. Offer of a judgment. Execution enforcing a judgment for a specific act, and enforcing relief for or against a non-party. So as you hear those words, those things that would happen in, a, in, in any court proceedings, okay, the question comes to my mind is, are you familiar enough with those rules? Do you know what they mean? 
Do you know how to implement the rule? Do you know why the rule is necessary? And I mean, sometimes that is just because they put the rule. Um, sometimes it is to create um, or to lessen chaos. How about that, uh, for, from my perspective? So in order to lessen chaos, it's easier to put make a rule and make it broad over the whole state that, such that everyone does things the same way. I believe it was not too long ago that we found out that in my state as well that um, we had a bunch of what one, one could, would call rogue judges um, making up their own rules as they went along and, you know, just kind of winging it as they went. And what it created was a lot of chaos. Um, and from that chaos came rules and order. Um, you will do it this way, and it came down from the state level, so the highest office, you know, the governor and attorney general, um, basically, you know, sat sat the rules in place and created. Well, they didn't create them, but they they seeded them by making them become part of the law. That then meant every other judge in this county or in every county had to, in fact, follow that same rule. So it keeps us in a sense of fairness and a sense of um, the ability to move about without feeling that we're going to be targeted in one and not targeted in another or, you know, we're going to get justice over here, but, my God, we couldn't possibly get justice over there because they did things, you know, totally different. So um, from my perspective, they are very valuable. They've been talked about before on some of these calls, and it's something that I think very few of us actually take the time to look at, and yet I know that as I've been doing my studies that I have been diving more and more and more into those and really enjoying them. And as I convert, um, or as I look at the federal list and then I look at the state list, I, I, I really try to, to balance out what, you know, not necessarily like I have to know everything about what's right with the feds and, you know, or different from the federal versus the state conflicts. But I, I really kind of want to just see where we're at, where we sit. Do we sit among the many or do we sit among the few? And I, you'll find that some states will definitely sit among the few and some will be right in the mix and some will be more on the heavy hand. So um, it's a good practice to really kind of see where you're at from the perspective of where does your state fit and do you like it there? And you might want to consider living in another state. In fact, if you find out that the rules might be a little too oppressive and, and from that perspective. So anyway, that is my topic for tonight. If anyone has any questions, comments, or concerns about this, I would be happy to entertain them. Um, to me, they are all important uh, items that one will need to know at some point if one is going to take a quiet title action. Um, in, under their belt, meaning that they're going to hire an attorney, and and you know that they if they don't want to just leave everything in the attorney's hands. It's best if you know just as much as the attorney, not necessarily in numbers of years in law school, but if you in fact know the rules, because then when the rules get you know a little mixed up, you can make a correction and have that have your attorney make the correction such that you are aware of what's going on and he hasn't missed something either. So two eyes or three eyes are always better than, than one set. So that's where I come from. Does anybody have any questions, comments, or concerns? Or ideas, suggestions? 
You're right, Nancy, I think, because if you're doing like um, a chain of title, then you're going back through each one of the documents and, and then you're going to be able to tell the attorney what's wrong, what's right, and all that. But, you know, a lot of attorneys, they, they look at this stuff and they'll just say, well, must be right. Somebody's got some kind of paperwork or something you know differently, you know. I mean, I was looking at paperwork today and it's it's all boogered up. I mean, it really is, you know. It says a deal, they got a deal here, they got some kind of a mor- assignment of mortgage and the changes to an assignment of an open-end mortgage. I mean, but it's just a real big contrived confusion, you know, so you're absolutely right. And then you got to know how the rules are played. And if you don't know how the rules are played, then you better educate yourself on how the rules are played. You know, the choice. And this is, and this but, is the rule book. <laughs> and it, it's a big game. I mean, think about this is a big game. This is not something, you know, I'm going as a traffic ticket down or I can play around and not go to jail. This is a, this is a, you know, your house or whatever, it's worth, you know, a certain amount of money. So it really is a big game. And they're going to put, they're going to, they're not going to stop, you know, putting all the stops to pretty good. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Anyone else have anything? Yeah, I'll add to that. Uh, the subject matter when we're starting to look at rules. I mean, there's a whole body of rules, and we should recognize that when we're speaking to the state, generally looking, we would look towards the Supreme Court rules. What it may not be called the Supreme Court in that state, but that's the idea. You know, whatever the highest authority is by the name for the state, and we would look up. Um, notably, there's two sets of rules. Uh, we have rules of procedures, and we have rules of evidence. Um, to add to the beginning, which is often where a lot of us tend to fail right from the jump, and of course I'm not offering legal or financial advice, it's just information and opinion, is that if a party would look under um, subjectively under rule like uh, 301, they speak into a thing that's dealing like presumption in civil cases generally it's a real it's it's a very short very short rule however it explains a lot on why right from the opening salvo so to speak the ball gets dropped and it goes along the lines like this and uh, i just finished bringing it up and it is 301 in a civil case unless a federal statute or these rules provide otherwise, the party against whom a presumption is directed, so we're talking about the defendant, has the burden of producing evidences to rebut the presumption. Now, that pretty well sounds like guilty until proven innocent, if you ask me. But that's the nature of the beast. Now, they continue in one other sentence, which says, but this rule does not shift the burden of persuasion, which remains on the party who had it originally, subjectively the plaintiff. So what is it that we're saying? The plaintiff can allege virtually anything under the stars. They have what is regarded as a presumptive claim that it's true. If the defendant does not cast a shadow that is given to the evidences by producing some form of a rule, whether it's a technical violation or whether it's an evidentiary rule in which is being violated, 
then the allegation, regardless of how false it may be, stands as true as presumption. So once that rule has been brought forward by the subjective defendant, it is at that point in time that the plaintiff in this demonstration becomes the obligated party to have to prove their case. And at that point, it also opens up what I feel is probably the most beneficial element of this entire process, which is discovery. If people would spend the time to write out questions and then select out of those questions, consolidate them, because we often just reframe the same question over and over, consolidate them down to where we can keep them within a just a few, because these things are like golden tickets. And within those discovery questions, it essentially leads the opponent to have to make certain admissions, which if they fail to meet the, the request, then of course, by the rules, we motion to compel. If they fail to produce, then we can seek a motion to dismiss. Again, it's just a matter of the rule set. So if I were to suggest considerations given towards discovery, most states only allow about 25 questions. There's exceptions, but generally it's 25. You don't want to burn all 25 up all at once, folks. Use just a few of them because you never know what the opponent is going to respond and whether or not you need to use another one of your, your golden tickets. So I'll just put that out there and, and finish with that. Thank you, Nancy. Okay, Kenny. Well, I'll, I'll pose a question. All right, because I'm in front of my face right at the present moment. I've been looking at this and trying to understand it. Um, there was two assignment of mortgages, two different companies, and they said seller servicing number is the exact same number. And wouldn't you think that it'd be a different service number because they're different companies and all the way, you know, from different things, right? You know, it's the same lender or whatever. I mean, the same loan or whatever. But it's just, you're just looking at that and like, you'd think that would be a little different, you know? And the paperwork looks very similar to each other and you could just, like, this is, this is like copied. You can just, it's like, you know, paste it, whatever. But, yeah, you, I don't know. Even I don't know how I answer every question that would be, you know? I understood the nature of the statement. Did I hear you say that the number in which is coming from another party is mm -hmm. maintaining the same number of the original account? Is that what I'm hearing? No, not the original account. It was um, the third and fourth documents of the third and fourth um, assignment had the exact same uh, seller servicing number and it wasn't on the one or two, so it came up three and four. And then you'd say, okay, so where did that number come from? But then if you were in an interrogatory question, you'd be, let's say, the sixth person claiming they have everything, right? So, I mean, how are you going to go back and say to, the, to these, you know, hey, look, there was a number here on uh, number three document, number four document, you know, the three or four behind it. What does that mean, you know? What does seller servicing number mean, whatever? 
what does that mean? You know, I mean, how would you phrase that in such a way that you would understand? Was it was it a part of that, or was it because it was another number that maybe they put it in MERS or some other system that you really just didn't know understand what it was? Okay. Because, uh, yeah, I, I kind of hear the general direction in which that's moving. If it were me, perhaps the consideration may go into terminology such as this. Um, I have no record or evidences of the number in which you are reporting as being a form of obligation. Has this account number been known by any other number or identifiers? If yes, please list by company and number. Now, in order to set that up, would there not been perhaps maybe a request for um, uh, verification prior to? Are you saying, I mean, if we're practicing at verification, you're talking about that? Yeah, um, because the subject matter is, is that we're moving into con uh, consumer federal protection at that point in time. Um, generally speaking, whenever an account goes from one place to another, now, if it is maintaining the same account number, then we would think, anyways, rationally think, that that is being maintained as a form of a negotiable instrument, wouldn't we? You because think so? Because we would not be able to change or or modify the original um, account numbers. Wouldn't that sound reasonable? Mm-hmm. Okay, so if they're changing the account numbers, what's that kind of suggesting then? Well, if you were changing the account numbers, you could see that um, there's a new account number with somebody else. And I would think that would be right. But being the same account number, would I would think that why are you just a different company altogether? So you should have your own account number. I should have my own account number. Therefore, nothing can get boogered up by. But if you have the same number, it seems like I would, I'm thinking maybe I'm not thinking like clearly enough. But you know, I was just thinking about that today. Like, how is this possible to be this way? You know. I don't know. And then there was another couple things, a couple more questions that went on top of that too that kind of like let me like some other direction. This person gets a loan in November 8th of 2000, but there's documents saying that there was um, some kind of agreement in October. Wait a minute. How does, how does that happen on the same year? It, says record, it said it was recorded at 10-5-2000. Uh, Wait a minute. The loan didn't start until November. How was anything recorded? Well, if that would be the case, then there had to have been a contract agreement. Would that be a stipulated effect? You think so? There'd be something there, not there. Would a request for production of the contract uh, be a reasonable request? Yes, it would be. And then there's another number. And it says deal number. So somebody had a deal, <laughs> deal or no deal, and there was a number on it. Like, what's that about? You know, you know. It's just a lot of questions you have to ask. I mean, that that interrogatory is going to be. You know, you got to really think about how you're going to ask these questions, and you know, you only have 25 to ask. And does it really? I mean, does it really matter if it's a deal number or not? I mean, I no, I don't know. You know, well, how do you? That's meant a lot of the like if you're looking at just the accounting numbers themselves, which essentially under a verification letter, uh, within that there would they not have to produce some form of evidences? Um, exactly. They had done now. Now the question is, do they actually do it? And well, that's a different subject matter. But we'll recognize that that there opens up the proverbial uh, gateway under the presumptive claims as to rebut the state. Um, just what did you do to verify that? 
um, because my accounting numbers don't reflect at all the numbers in which you're offering here. Mm -hmm. So um, as it stands right now, I would like to know, and I'm sure that the, the bench would like to know as well, just uh, what did you do to actually verify this debt? That would be one part. Now the next mm -hmm. part may go is to note that subject to now, it, it depends on whether we're the plaintiff or, or the defendant, but if we were the defendant in the case, that upon the answer, I may state within my answer that the documentation in which I have, see it, exhibit, whatever, that supports a particular account number and uh, perhaps a party in interest, uh, whereby this person here, whoever is the plaintiff in the case, uh, is unknown to me. I have no documentation that supports that I have any obligation with this individual. And now under an interrogatory question, that would be words, where did you get the account? And is this thing known by any other account numbers? Please list by company name and um, account number, transfer dates, et cetera. And so just that right there, it's you now that now just, of course, I, I'm not per, uh, privy to uh, the documents in which you're speaking into, but yeah. just speaking, you know, to the to the large or to the broad, it almost seems to me that everything in which you just spoke to uh, was just summed up in just a couple actions. Well, you know, the, the verification, the rebuttal, remember, under the presumptive claim rebuttal I, and by stating my, my records don't indicate those numbers at all. That's one. And then the next part is, I don't know who you are, person of interest, you know, uh, denying uh, signature block. I don't know them, or nor do I have any contract that stipulates that I have an obligation owed to you. And uh, according to my records, you, you did not complete satisfactory um, the uh, request for debt verification, whereby what actions, now interrogatory, by what question or what actions did you take to verify, please list name, number, title, et cetera, for the steps in which you took in order to verify the debt, that'd be one. And two, has this account number been identified by any other numbers by name, title, company, transfer, dates, et cetera? Yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you you pretty much summed it up. Absolutely, you know, and and the the document itself, the original mortgage, did not say whether or not they could sell the uh, the promissory note or any or any instruments at all. It never said never said a word about that. So, could they do it? I mean, we always talk about whether or not you could sell an instrument. Oh, and, you, uh, well, hold it. I thought uh, have, have, through all the things in which we've explored. So yeah. Is there anything that stops me from doing anything? No, there's nothing that stops you from doing anything. Okay, so, you so can sell can, your own instruments you want. You can do whatever you want to do without trespassing. And now but, with that same framework, now the subject matter goes back into that enforcement mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. Whether or not they were actually entitled to make such a transfer or conveyance. And whether or not they actually even had anything to convey when they did make that transfer. Yeah. Right. So, right. so now we start speaking into the subject matter, going back into, um, like uh, on last week's workshop where we identified with um, person of interest, 
it went, uh, who are you? And the next part of that is uh, identifying with subject matter an object that went to, which we recognize as instrument, but uh, what instrument? Make them spell it out. What instrument are you seeking to enforce? Well, in that right there, that that opens up that that room for exploratory. If you're if you're following what I'm saying, because they have to make some form of a statement to that. You know, otherwise, if they don't produce the evidences, would it not be a request for, uh, well, motion to compel first? We have to follow the rules. Motion to compel, uh, they fail to produce. And, you know, that would be under um, production. They failed to produce. And then right after that, motion to dismiss, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Or a motion to summary judgment, whatever, yeah. Hey, or right. summary judgment, yeah. It becomes subjective mm-hmm. on what, you know, what the case itself is. But, yeah. You're right. I mean, I mean, a lot. What I'm trying, what I'm trying to convey tonight is like, if you go do your own documents and go through your documents, or even if it's not your own documents, just go take a test study of somebody's stuff, and you look at this, and you, by by hands on, you're going to have more questions than just, well, here's Bank A. Bank A should be doing it this way. Well, what happens if it's Bank A and it says as trustee or AKA something or other, and you know, and starts throwing in those little monkey wrenches into you know into the will, the books of the will. You start thinking about wait, wait a minute. You know, start bringing these questions to you. So that's what I was just trying to convey tonight. You know that you know because I was doing it, and I was like, this is a really good you know good thing for someone else to do the same thing. So that's why I was trying to bring it tonight. So. I agree. You know, again, it, it, there's many elements or different type of approaches depending upon what evidences that we're um, going through. You know, in other words, what ancillary documentation or what uh, evidences by filing and whatnot that we have uh, to where we can raise uh, the relative suspect issues of what uh, the opponent is claiming, and then we feed into it, um, suggestively speaking, that is. In other words, get them to make some form of a declaratory statement regarding their status you know, uh, against the subject matter. And once we've drawn them into that there, then we can apply the rule to it, if you're following what I'm saying. So in other words, they may be able to make some form of a declaratory statement which is not supported by evidence. In other words, they come out with a, a resulting document, and you go, whoa, 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 that's really nice of you to produce that right there, but that doesn't do anything but raise more questions, brother. Where's the support on this right here? What did you do to verify this obligation? Mm-hmm. Are you a 301-I, I-I, or an I-I-I, or you're just... And, you don't have any of that, yeah. and understanding the nature of that, in which you had just mentioned, is also to state, uh, Your Honor, it seems to me that my opponent over here is picking and choosing his status. At one moment, he's claiming that he was a duly qualified holder. Now, all of a sudden, he's claiming that he's some form of an agent. Now, all of a sudden, he's claiming that he doesn't even have the documentation. What's going on here? You know, you're, are you going to allow him to keep changing his status? Mm-hmm. Because you can o- remember, you can only pick one. What are you? And that's how you have to bring your case forward. Yeah, that's because if they say they're a holder, oh, so you're a holder. Okay, great. Then show me the note. Show me everything. And they say, well, no, we're not a not we're a non holder. Oh, okay, so then you're not a holder. You better start showing me all the assignments, all the 
um, on the gap and um, any other any other thing any other thing signatures and titles and all that that gave you that authority and did you have did you were you a holder before you lost it or stole it you know whatever happened to your the instrument and then you know that's how you got to look at the whole thing so well, I think that I may challenge right from the jump in in that demonstration that you offered the moment that they made the election to seek to change their status uh, I think that at that point in time I would challenge them. Uh, it would be, hold it a second, they came forward stating that this is the status in which they held as being a holder or non-holder in possession, whatever. Mm-hmm. And now they're claiming that they are not that. What are they seeking to pull over on this court? Which I'm just insinuating fraud upon the court is what I'm seeking to say without mm-hmm. actually saying that. It seems to me that they're operating in some form of a tactical deception here, Your Honor being that they are not sure of what their status is, and until such time that they have sufficient proofs of their claim, I seek to have this case dismissed without prejudice. So my opponent can refile at his leisure whenever he does have the appropriate documentation. And in the meantime, pay my court bills. Yeah, right. And does anyone else have any questions, comments, concerns, wins, successes, partial successes, hoopla's? Partial. Well, a partial success is, you know, I got this, but I didn't get that. Well, you know, being down the county today, down there talking to the recorders and saying, hey, look, here's, here's all the documentation, here's the assignments, where's all the releases? And she said, well, they got to be there. Oh, they've got to be. And then you're like, look, lady, here's the freaking thing. It ain't there. And she's like, well, wow. You know, and like they, they they are just assuming that when there's a release, there should be an assignment. And, and they're thinking all that. And like, how do you how do you show them this? You know, so she uh, had a me come in. Are you talking about the, the, the records office, Charles? Records office, yeah. Yeah, yeah. on records office. Just uh, for purposes of demonstration, perhaps maybe we should reiterate a salient issue there, is understanding the nature between filings and index. Mm-hmm. When we're looking at index, index is not the same thing as filing. If we mm-hmm. recognize what a filing is, it originates as a filing, is we have a piece of paper that we put across the table and they put a time stamp and date on it. That, that You know, the clerk puts that little stamp on it. That's not called filed at that point. Now it goes into a proverbial basket whereby they will go into the basket, the people that are working in the back will go into the basket and they make a decision if this is an index, you know, an issue to be indexed, which is generally looked at grantor-grantee logs, or it may go into another category in which people are not aware of, which is just simply a filing category. And that means like, for example, powers of attorney, maybe some corporate assignments, things like that there, which are not, you know, remember, this, see, there's no one rule for this. And this is, this is kind of like the, the cravat, is there's no one rule for every county. So we have to approach it with a little bit of caution because the clerk's duty is to protect the records, which also is to protect the, the public. That's their oath. And so if we go in there under the you know, the, um, the cloud or suspicion of litigation or whatever, you may find out that they're not very willing to, to 
to inform you of a new, another set of records that are dealing specifically with filings. Now, if it was dealing with the grantor-grantee logs, you'll find out that that becomes indexed, and those are readily available. But the other things that are dealing with perhaps um, um, interim or limited power of attorney or uh, power of attorneys or perhaps even some various corporate assignments uh, do not necessarily have to be indexed. They're just filed. And that could be for all sorts of things. Sometimes it's because there is misspellings or they forgot to add something or forgot to check a box or something like that. Um, to put it in another well, context is to look at less penance or notice of penancy that uh, we go through the motions to do it. If you have an attorney, you don't have to go through having a superior court uh, sign off on it. But if, you, if a party was operating pro se, they have to go through the hoops to uh, put in a proposed order um, for uh, filing or, a, uh, like, say, for a, a quiet title action, a less penance now, or notice of penancy. Now, the idea is they sign off on it. You take that. You take that. Uh, along with your less penance, you go on down to the, um, the land's office and you push it across the counter. Well, they file it, right? Cha-chink. It's filed. But if you look at the rules, the notice to the world isn't until it's indexed. Filing is not sufficient. Indexed is the rule. So that means that if it does not become indexed, it doesn't become notice to the world. So if they're moving forward with a foreclosure, um, you know, like say a sale, you know, a foreclosure sale on the county steps or whatever, um, if it has not been indexed at that point in time, it becomes the responsibility of the movement that had filed to take have copies of the records sufficient, plenty of records of this, copies of it, and take a couple witnesses along with them that are not related to them or to each other, that have no vested in, um, outcome in the proceedings whatsoever. In other words, they have to be divest of the subject matter so that they can stand as witness to the event. And that party has to go to up to the auctioneer and tell him that there's been a less penance filed. Now, when they go to announce that, that auction, that person is required at that point in time to stand up and say there has been a less penance filed. Anybody that is interested in purchasing this property, here is the record. And now you have two witnesses that verify that. They write off affidavits, get a notary stamp to it, and uh, there's your witnessing as in the event that they pursued further um, now the subject matter falls into if they continue with the sale, which it, sometimes they do, uh, but the notice had been given at that point in time. It has been verified by two witnesses. Now the subject matter just falls into whether or not it was a credit purchase or was it a bona fide purchase. That's, that's the next thing in which moves forward, where a lot of people are wasting their money trying to sue a bona fide purchaser, whereby... All they're doing is throwing good money away because if it is an actual bona fide purchase after sale, you can't get the property back. The property's gone. That's just the way the system is. However, that does, 
I should have said it in index. I mean, I'm sorry because I was looking for grantor or grantor, grantor, grantee laws, mortgage or mortgagee laws. We're going to have UCC the UCC filing laws. I mean, it was on liens, mortgages. I mean, it was a lot of stuff. It was it was intense. So maybe I was wrong by saying it was filed. I should just said it was index. So I just wanted to make a little. Bit. Yeah, there's like yeah, we want to approach them to make sure. Thank you for bringing me back to point, Charles. The subject matter is is that. They have two separate, and not all, but many of them do. They have two different sets of records, you know, record-keeping systems. One of them is under filings, and the other is under indexing. I'm using this in the broadest sense. And, and if you, we do not approach them in a personable way to where we're not seeming offensive or threatening, you know, such as showing that we're planning on litigation or something like that, because they become highly protective of that record at that point, because there's various culpability issues and things like that, and their duty is to protect the records. That's why they're there, uh, and their duty is to, the, is to the public. But if the subject matter were to turn to say that perhaps the homeowner borrower was stating words to the effect of, you know, in a personable manner, that they were considering maybe like going to sell their property or something or other, and they were getting all the records together. And if, in the event there was another category of filings in which they may have that um, may identify with, you know, the property, the grantor grantee index, and things like that. If there is a cat, can I get access to that or copies of those records? And usually, not always, but usually, they will go ahead and they will allow you access to that. I would like to say I've had personal experience with that and in some cases it could take up to 10 days to two weeks to get that indexed as a quote per the <laughs> county clerk. That's right. So it, it's not mm. something that has to be immediate. And I've seen, um, I've seen uh, cases out in California to where there's been a six-week delay and perhaps it, it, I'm sure they could probably even go further. But uh, we're talking about a filing of a less penance that was not indexed. So there was that there was a period of delay just for that right there that it, that when I know you know from just experience that it was six weeks, and the the sale date was a month. So that they had to get out there and wave the flag if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, may have looked like it was on purpose, but it may or may not have been. <laughs> yeah, you, you just don't know. I mean, yeah, it, it's the system is, you, you just don't know if they're intentionally delaying or in the event they are just overbooked. Uh, you know, so much work and it's interfering with their Dunkin' Donut time. Who knows? Yeah, you got to watch it. I, I really have made a very nice, friendly relationship with the county recorder. Um, actually, not just in in one county, but in two counties here, where I live, and um, it it is amazing because I've always gone in with the questioning. Um, you know, someone said that this should be in here. I mean, you know, I was speaking with an attorney, not you know, not not just just asking questions and stuff, and wanting to know where this might be filed, and he recommended that I come on down and talk to you guys. Um, asking those kinds of probing questions, you may not get the answer the first time, nor the second time, nor the third time. I believe it was my ninth try. 
when I finally, what I would call break through the ice, and he actually disclosed a whole bunch of information to me that um, allowed me to not only see what I would call the original set of books, the state I live in has a, a, a law that says there will be kept two separate books, one for land records and one for all other recordings. Um, and so it's quite clear in our state um, about what's supposed to be recorded there or not. Now, they have, I would call it, whether they're separate or not, or whether they've commingled it, I guess, to a certain extent. I believe they have commingled it, but yet at the same time, they still have it available. One's just easierly, more easily accessed than the other one. Yeah, the so index. You generally have access to indexing. Right, yep. But the other ones you have to ask or know how to ask or know how to find or dig or just keep asking questions. Mm -hmm. Recommend. So. Yeah, thank you for bringing that forward, Nancy. You know, I'm, I'm sure that the listener gained a value out of that. You know, to again perseverance. You know, just mm -hmm. because they say no one time, it wouldn't be a bad idea, just in a subjective sense, even before you even go down there. Take a look at how the structure is to be. As you had stated, your your state law is very specific. You know that, and in regards to the filing system, one is that of index, and there's another of all other records. What the, What is all other records? Well, all other records. You don't know what the heck that means, but you know that there is another category of filings. Yeah. And so perhaps that's the question which can be uh, posited. What is all other records? And where might they be located? <laughs> would they, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of insinuating that they're over here at this office. Do you have all other records? And if not, where would they be? Right. Who, who might have that magic key that might unlock the door? <laughs> if that person's standing right on the other side of the counter, right behind those blinkers of theirs, they know where those records are. That's their that's their job. Yeah, I'd also invite people to um, not just stick with the same office. So <laughs> I'll I'll say this from this perspective: we have an Office of Assessment and Taxation, and then we have an Office of um, Taxes, okay, separate from the other ones, and then we have an Office of Records, and then we have an office that does, I'll call it chartography, or cartography, sorry. And each one of those can add a valuable piece to the puzzle. I, um, discovered that there were a couple of different um, ways to describe the legal description of a piece of property. And so I took each piece and, um, you know, I didn't live necessarily near this particular county, so I sent out an email to their department because they all say, you know, contact this department and ask questions. So um, in contacting them, I sent over the two legal descriptions and I asked them which one was correct, okay, because I didn't really have an idea. I know that you can make one, you know, one degree off, one foot off, one inch off, you know, and you all of a sudden have a new different piece of property. So I was really kind of stunned to see two different 
two different actual things. I mean, different words in different paragraphs and things. So anyway, I sent it over, and they were very helpful and very kind and said, um, you know, according to our records, there's only one thing different about this particular um, thing, and it's this. You know, they, they highlighted what it was and that it was not required, which I thought was an interesting terminology. So meaning that their department didn't require that to be, and the other one, the shorter one, was just as good and as valid as the longer one. So when, you're, when you may be putting something into the newspaper for public um, publication to invite all those parties that may or may not know, um, you'd probably want to go with the shorter one just because of the cost. So it was a valuable lesson for me not to just take, well, first of all, to look carefully at each one of those um, descriptions and understand not necessarily what it says, but understand what the meanings are from the county's point of view, not from my point of view. Because the counties is the one that matters from my perspective. They're the ones that make that decision about what it's supposed to be, and that is the cartography department. They're the ones that take the map and outlay it and, you know, meets and bounds on every single piece of property. And when every piece of property is sold or has another, and I, I believe that the indexing part is part of that where it goes through that department to verify that that information is correct on that property. And then they go back and they either say, yes, it's, you know, yes, it goes through, or no, by the way, you've done something wrong and it's not good. So um, anyway, I, I just, like I said, it, it allows me to explore and to really dive into things and not just take what I see on the face as face value, but that is it. Asking questions is very valuable. Anyone have anything else? Steve, were you going to ask about the UCC, please? Well, I, I found my notes. So, said that Kenny, Kenny, uh, I was looking for specific uh, literature. I uh, went to file a UCC filing, and uh, what they gave me was they could not accept it. They said it was already accepted at the state level, and the state level number was on there, and the state preceded was higher than the county record, and so they would not take and file the UCC in the county. And I explained to them I wanted it in the county records, and they said... They gave me a list, and they basically told me uh, for UCC 9501, it has to be timber to be cut, minerals, minerals as abstract, accounts arising from the sale of minerals or goods that are, are or are to become fixture. And those are the only things that they would take into file for a UCC. As at the county level, brother. Correct. Right. And now one one county person did take one, and it is recorded, and I pulled it up on the index, and I see it in there, but then I took two others in there to file, and they rejected them, and the supervisor came over 
and he's the one who handed me this piece of paper and said, we do not record those here. That's correct. See, generally speaking, um, in order to move past that is to recognize that the action itself is Secretary of State. That is a, that's a state filing. So it's recorded with the Secretary of State, and then you get a certified copy of that. Now, the correspondence uh, for that, one would assign a, um, a private registration number to it. And then in the description box, um, it being relative to, um, to that UCC, is that we would, we would assure that the subject matter is speaking into what, you know, if we're speaking to property, as being a final expression in a record or uh, whatever specifically, you know, the, the UCC filing is for. Now, is it going to be filed at the county? No, it won't be filed at the county level. That is a state record. But you can file, um, uh, again, it's filed with the state, and that right there is, is its own jurisdiction, which, um, it, yeah, it, it, just, it maintains its own jurisdiction. Otherwise, the subject matter would come up, why would you need to file a UCC at the county level? What is the, what is the purpose or what is it that you're seeking to accomplish? Okay, so if somebody went to pull up a title record, uh, would it not, they, I see the one that was recorded in the, on the county level because it is indexed, but how would this one that was filed with the state come up in a record? Would that automatically come up? So it's filed with the state. Yeah, with inside there, it's it's a notice in the in the state. But if you're talking about installing some form of a record in the county, what I'm now I'm just going by presumption. The subject matter is is that there's, uh, the UCC is to end, indicate that there is some form of a creditor debtor relationship. Is that not what I'm hearing? Yes. Okay. And now the object is is what kind of records does the county accept? Do they accept things such as perhaps assignments and things like that there? Yes. Okay. So one could file the UCC with the Secretary of State to secure a merit within the state and then file an assignment perhaps within the county to indicate the, um, the status of the creditor-debtor relationship? Such as okay. of an assignment. In other words, whoever was the, you know, if the, whatever the conveyance was or the interest. Remember, you're forming a form of a lien. It could be some form of a, yeah, we we'll say assignment or perhaps you know. Remember when we were just talking about indexing or perhaps filing? It could be a, a corporate assignment or a power of attorney or something like that. It could be filed with the county. Okay. Does that make beneficial sense? interest in a trust? Sure. Uh, it doesn't that uh, constitute form of a lien? It, it becomes a lien interest. Yes. Okay. So is is lien interest filed in the county against land or real property? Yes. Okay. And if that would be the case, then that would be the department for that there. But if you're seeking to secure the, like, for example, if a party moved through with a UCC filing, which I am going to use as a presumptive statement, as to say somebody was moving um, administrative paper in order to establish some form of merit, 
whereby the other party had failed to provide uh, suitable evidences of claim or as an example, uh, which would be regarded, you know, in one sense, it would be regarded as informal. Now, remember, the, the filings themselves do not constitute um, um, self-authentication. All they are is just notices. So uh, we establish a, a record within the Secretary of State as to the uh, ownership interests, and then we report that interest against the real property in the county. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. So it has to be filed a different way. Okay. I understand. Yeah, I, I think you were jumping the shark is what I think. I mean, like you had the right idea. I, in my assessment, you had the right idea. It was just that you were you're going about it back asswards. With, with, with pretty normal. Okay. Uh, I, I'm, brother, I it, I played this in too. <laughs> it took a while to figure out. Everybody has their own jurisdictional game, and when we talk about UCC, um, other than the fact of when we're starting to talk about mineral rights or perhaps water rights, uh, along those lines there that are directed specifically towards a property, um, those, those right there are reservations generally. Like I can, can like uh if I was conveying a property, but I was retaining the mineral rights on that property, I would file that with the county. Right, which is exactly what they told me. Yeah, right. That's because that's, that's a lien. If you think about it, I'm, I'm leaning the property for minerals, so it's directly affecting the the real property ownership, you know, rights or beneficial interest that is maintained, equitable interest that is maintained with the property. Okay. Okay. Makes makes more sense. Okay. Oh, and anybody else have anything else? Questions, comments, concerns, jokes, stories. Oh, I heard a good joke. You ready? Police officer, police officer gets a call over the scanner. Um, sheriff's been called to the to the house uh, for a, a man shot. Okay. Sheriff gets to the door, the house. He's met by a woman. He says, uh, "Ma'am, looks like your husband's been shot. What happened?" She says, "He stepped on the he stepped on the floor when it was wet." So he radios back, the sheriff radios back to the um, to the um, dispatch, and he goes, yep, we'll be here a while. Uh, floor has to dry before it can apprehend suspect. <laughs> Meaning he wasn't going to step on the floor because that woman was going to shoot him. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? Okay, well, I invite you all over to uh, webinars at com. Send an email on over there if you haven't done so already, and come join us for some entertaining ideas, thoughts, all of those uh, far-out things <laughs> that happen in life.
um, on Saturday, um, 9 Pacific, 10 Central, no, Mountain, 11 Central, uh, uh, Noon Eastern. There you go. Got all the time zones in. Okay. Thank yes. you, Nancy. Thank you, Nancy. You're Thank welcome. you. Y'all have a good night. Thanks. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, guys. See you next week. Thank you, yes. Charles. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye, Thanks. everybody.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.